The first of our two services today in remembrance and a couple of topics. One this morning, the memorable order of tin hats, and I'm sure you know exactly what that is all going to be about. The memorable order of tin hats tonight, heroes with feathers, and we're looking at pigeons primarily in the First World War. But on to the subject then, this morning, this memorable order of tin hats. We have come to the anniversary of Armistice Day, and we have come to the 104th anniversary. We're going back to the 11th of November, of course, and we're talking about 11th of November of 1918, which is why we get, given the fact that the hostilities were agreed to be stopped by the Germans, by the Allies, thus bringing an end to the First World War. And so we have the expression now, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th hour. And we know, of course, the armistice document was signed earlier than that in the morning, around about 5 a.m. on the 11th of November 1918, but it came into effect some six hours later. It was signed in a railway carriage in the forest of Compion in France, and that carriage actually belonged personally to the French, uh, who was the supreme allied commander at that time, the French General Ferdinand Foch. A number of years later, 1940, we have Hitler coming and exacting revenge, and that revenge was exacted on this uh, score, that he brought the French then in the Second World War into the same carriage, in the same place, to sign another armistice on German terms this time, and that was ultimate humiliation, of course. The armistice of 1918, it ran initially for 30 days. It was time-limited, and then it would be a review, and then another review, and another review, until a formal peace treaty was signed the next year in Versailles. Now, should the Germans, this is why it was kept under review, should they deviate anyway from the arrangement in that train carriage, then the Allies warned there will be a resumption of full hostilities within 48 hours. Many organizations and associations have sprung up to commemorate the sacrifice and the losses of the soldiers in that terrible First World War. One of those commemorative associations is the Memorable Order of Tin Hats. It was formed offshore in a different country entirely because it has its beginnings in Durban, South Africa, in the year 1927. But Almost immediately, the whole idea and the concept caught on and caught hold in the United Kingdom as well. What they were doing here was they were setting up an organization as a token by which they could remember the great friendships that had been established during and after that great war, 1914 through to 1918. The founder of the organization was a man by the name of Charles Alfred Evenden, he took a job in a factory after he left school. Then to supplement his income, he went out and he started to sell newspapers. And something intrigued him about the newspapers he was selling, and that would have been the cartoons. And so he, he studied those cartoons, and he actually dreamed of being a cartoonist someday. Didn't happen for a while because he joined, when the World War broke out, he joined the Australian Army. 
He was sent to Egypt. Then he took part in the Gallipoli campaign as an Anzac soldier. At Gallipoli, he was severely shell-shocked and evacuated to the island of Malta. Eventually brought back to England, hospitalized there again. And then when hostilities finally ceased, with the armistice being signed, he returned to a farming life in Australia. One night in 1927, he and the editor of a paper, the Natal Mercury, uh, they had seen a war film, and after seeing the war film, he'd been challenged to draw a cartoon that would represent what had happened in the war, and now that the soldiers were coming home, the feelings that many would have. And so he drafted this cartoon that he called Forgetfulness. And you can see the tin hat, the Allied soldier's helmet in the ocean. You can see the steamship, and it's going in the opposite direction, going away towards the horizon. And we have this ghostly figure of a soldier, and he is left there, forlorn in the middle of a scene of isolation. And the thought was, now that the sacrifice has been offered, now that the hardship has been endured for these four to five years, so many people are forgetting about those soldiers that have paid a heavy price. And so this cartoon was meant to evoke remembrance. And as far as Charles Evenden was concerned, he thought, I'm going to do something as practical as I can to banish forgetfulness and encourage remembrance. What he did was, he drafted this organization, and he had a symbol. And you can see it there, the second symbol, the one underneath the hat, and it has the M-O-T-H motif on that, which is, of course, exactly what we're talking about today, the memorable order of tin hats. There's a wax candle stuck to the hat, and when you'd have been in the trenches, that would have been a typical sight. Using the wax of the candle, they affixed that candle onto the top of their hats, and by that, illuminated those dark trenches. Six words were around the motif. You don't see it here on screen, but the words were true comradeship, mutual help, and sound memory. And those were the principles on which this memorable order of tin hats would have been founded around. They got to call this man, uh, shortening his name, no doubt, uh, from even then. They called him Evom, or they called him, by the organization here, Moth O. But he spent much time over the years trying to build up the whole process of remembrance. What they did over in South Africa, and it spread as well to England and other parts of the world, they set up clubs, local clubs, and they were known as shell holes. And then when they were forming into larger areas, they were known as the dugouts. Over in England, General Browning would have been one of the shell holes. Douglas Bader, you will know where that has come from. Field Marshal Montgomery, again, uh, very well known uh, 
uh, Marshal within the War Royal Standard, Second World War we're talking about, Colonel Jones, um, South Georgia, and others. And some of those shell holes, as they call them, they still exist right to this present day. And men, members of the memorable order of the Tin Hats, they will come together, they will have their meetings, and they will pride themselves in still promoting their original values, true comradeship, mutual help, and sound memory. Now, when I discovered that this organization actually exists, and this is the purpose, their declared purpose, for which they do exist, it got me thinking. Veteran soldiers, seasoned campaigners, bound together as they are in these shell holes, these clubs, in the pursuit of the three great ideals of true comradeship, mutual help, and sound memory. I thought, well, really, is that not quite an astonishing picture of what an experienced Christian should be? The Queen actually came as Princess Elizabeth to South Africa in 1947. And with the royal family there, they had a special visit, came to the Warriors' Gate, which is the headquarters of this moth organization. And then after that, Mount Memory was also open to further encourage the whole process of remembrance. And you can check it out on the internet. It's now the 95th anniversary of the formation of this memorable order of tin hats. And so when we come to ourselves, thinking about their ideals, I reckon we have got a good template for what a child of God should be and should have as his interests in our world today. We are meant to be, are we not, tested and tried soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ. And surely, therefore, interacting one with the other, these same kinds of ideals are actually just true, practical Christian living. We've been emphasizing that in 1 Corinthians 13 for a couple of Sundays when we've been in that passage, and we're going on that topic again this morning, and we make no apology for doing it. It's a vital one in this day and age. True comradeship, mutual help, and sound memory. So the first one, those who are in the membership of this memorable order of tin hats, they say, this is their document, they're always proud to welcome the ongoing generations of veterans, and then they list a whole host of places in the world, and then they talk about other conflicts in Rhodesia, Northern Ireland, the Falklands, the Gulf, Bosnia, UN peacekeepers, other campaigns, and they say they are soon forgotten by the general public. But we want them on equal terms with those veterans remaining from World War II, 1939-45, or the Korean campaigns. And then they continue in saying, one significant feature with our membership is our warm welcome to veterans who also serve with the British Commonwealth, our allied country. So any time our shell holes, they are multinational. So in other words, what they're doing is saying, we are proud of our comradeship, that which exists between us, soldiers who have fought in the name of the British crown and in the Allied cause in general. And we don't want people to feel left out, and we don't want them to feel so totally on the fringes they've been forgotten. 
Now, these men will feel that they are bound together in the kind of comradeship that we read about in the Scripture. In John 15 to verse 13, for example, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. They knew something they believed of the meaning of Paul's words that he writes in Romans 5 and verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Many among their ranks, when they served in those trenches in World War I, they would have dared, and many would have died as well. And since that time, the survivors of that conflict and others, they meet together to remember the days of that costly, painful struggle. Those men that come together, forming the first shell holes and the dugouts back in 1927-28, they would have been just 10 years away at that stage from those terrible trenches. And they were well aware that when the war began, they knew full well. It was told to them it'll be a short one. The strap line, it'll be over by Christmas when it began September of 1914. It'll be a real short affair. It'll be like other wars, one of great movement along the battlefield, all conflict and movement and a battle here and a battle there. We rush on to the next place and the enemy is in retreat. But very soon, World War I became bogged down in trenches, typified by a lack of movement. Oh yes, it began dramatically enough. The German advances through Belgium, through France, en route for Paris, but then steelmate came in and trench warfare, that soon set in, and it wasn't until the very end of the conflict that the movement of armies began again. So these men would have shared in the tragedies. Death was constantly their companion as they were serving on the front lines. Raids launched against them, attacks launched against them, and in those busy sectors, can you imagine the almost constant shell fire as those shells were exploding around you, bringing pretty much random death? Who knows who will be next? Where the next shell is going to fall? Many men die on their first day in the trenches. Inexperienced men popped their heads above the trenches were taken out by enemy snipers' bullets. It has been estimated that up to one-third of Allied casualties on the Western Front, World War I, one-third were actually sustained in the trenches. Aside from the enemy injuries, disease would have wrought a heavy toll. So they shared in the tragedies. They also shared in the trials. You're in the trench. You've got company. Your fellow soldiers have got more company because you've got other 30 fellows running around around your feet and over your face and all of that kind of thing. Rat infestation. In their millions, those rats infested the trenches. And there were two main types, black ones, brown ones. Both were despised. The brown rat was especially feared because they gorged themselves on human remains and they grotesquely disfigured those bodies that lay there by targeting their eyes, eating their livers, and those brown rats could grow to the size of a cat. Not only that, come on the scale a little smaller, you've got lice, never-ending problem. 
in the seams of filthy clothing, causing the men to itch incessantly, even when the clothing would, as it was, periodically washed and deloused. Those lice eggs invariably would have been hidden in the seams again within a few hours of those clothes being put back on. The body heat that's generated will cause the eggs to hatch. Lice caused trench fever, very painful disease. Began suddenly with severe pain, followed by high fever, and recovery from that disease away from the trenches would have taken up to 12 weeks. Other characters were in there, frogs, by the score, found in the shell holes, covered in water, found in the base of the trenches, slugs and horned beetles, they crowded the sides of the trench. Then the problem with the nits. Many men chose, here's our option, the only option, shave their heads. I think I'd have been okay. Shaved them entirely to avoid this prevalent scourge. Then we had trench foot, another thing that they didn't want to share together, but they did in terms of the trials they endured. Another medical condition peculiar to trench life. It was a fungal infection of the foot caused by cold and wet and unsanitary trench conditions. It could turn gangrenous and result in amputation. Trench foot was more of a problem at the start of the trench warfare. Then as conditions improved in 1915 and on, it rapidly faded, though there was a trickle of cases that were constant right through the war. Other trouble in the trench would have been that of flooding. Heavy rainfall comes in. Those trenches quickly accumulated muddy water, made life so much more miserable for those who were occupying the trenches, and the walls of the trench rapidly became misshapen and were very prone to collapse. So here were men gathered now together in remembrance of what had happened, those shared tragedies and trials. Not only that, but they shared triumphs as well. Those who survived all of this and were later able to get out of the trenches and sweep across the battlefields, such as Messines and Amiens and Picardy and other places, and took the battle to the enemy until the war was finally won, they were able to share the victory, wear the laurels, if indeed any felt like doing that. But little wonder, given the pathway these folk had taken together. Little wonder they had a desire not to be separated now, but to form ourselves together into companies after the war to continue our friendship and to deepen the friendship that we had there. That's why we have organizations like the Memorable Order of Tin Hats. And there's a clear lesson coming out of that to you and to me if we are Christian soldiers today. Friendship and fellowship are essential. You know, there is no such thing. And that's contrary to what some people sometimes think and sometimes teach as well. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. That's a terrible position to be in. Many may have the opinion that it's just me and Jesus, I don't really need a church, and so I don't go to the place where the people of God assemble. My faith say private issue. Well, that's a totally unbiblical concept. The New Testament knows nothing 
of the individual Lone Ranger privatized form of Christianity. In the New Testament, the understanding is that we were saved into a family. We were saved into a people. We were saved into an historical movement that has gone all the way back to the creation of time and the first person redeemed. We are part of a people. There must therefore be fellowship between us. American preacher Vance Havner lamented, Christian fellowship has almost become a lost art. Think of that. Ask yourself, is that true? Or where do I have it? Or where can I go for it? Christian fellowship, he said, has almost become a lost art. And then he says, I recall how I was a boy. I sat before the open fire on a Saturday night while Father and the visiting minister talked long and late about the things of God. I remember John Brown, deacon in my first country charge, who used to visit my room and talk until midnight. There was time in those days. But who can take time off today to meditate at the Master's feet like Mary of old or to share his fellowship with other Christians? Fellowship, he says, has come to mean a noisy after session at church with coffee and cookies and a lot of idle chatter about everything on earth but spiritual things. How many Christian homes, and he brings it even closer to us there, know how to converse about Jesus Christ. Bunyan was helped by overhearing two godly women talk about the things of God. Would anybody listening in on your conversation be helped in his soul? Now, from Havner, those are challenging words. How do we answer the challenge? Chuck Swindoll suggests that many Christian groups have become like a pack of porcupines on a frigid wintry night. Not a very entertaining kind of picture of the child of God. Not by any means embellishing our own little thoughts about ourselves. Like a pack of porcupines on a frigid wintry night. What he's saying is the cold drives us closer together in a tight huddle to keep warm. And then as we begin to snuggle really close, our sharp quills cause us to jab and prick each other. And that condition forces us apart again. Before long, we start to get cold once more and we move back to warmth again, only to stab and puncture each other once more. I think of the little poem that goes to dwell above with saints we love. That will be grace and glory, to live below with saints we know. Well, that's another story. How can we break this old porcupine syndrome? That's what Swindoll asked. And the answer, he said, is in one word. Involvement. Or to use the biblical term, it is fellowship. Now, this is nothing new. If we turn to our New Testament, we find the believers in the early church. What did they practice? Fellowship. Acts 2 and verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. 
Paul, as we read today in Hebrews 10, 25, he urged all believers in Jesus, don't forsake the path of fellowship one with the other, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. The Apostle John, so long in his life, cut off from Christian fellowship by that banishment onto the Isle of Patmos. He writes in John, 1 John 1 and 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. What is the challenge for us here? Be an active participant in the fellowship that is essential for the church of Jesus Christ, and that is revealed to us by the practices and the ideals of this memorable order of the tin hats. Then we think of a second ideal that bound these veterans together, still does today, those that remain, and that is that of mutual help. Mutual help. Apparently, in the early years of the work at a place called Windy Corner in Reading, and that would have been the first shell hole they established in the United Kingdom, apparently there, their work was well known in the community. It was highly respected in that community. They knew that they were engaged in charity work. Senior citizens' homes, they were engaged there. Dr. Bernardo's boys' homes, they were involved there. Hospitals, they had some avenue in there as well. And they maintained two sound memory cottages. So there was mutual help that they were binding themselves together to administer. And what they had shown to each other during wartime continued through those advancing years. For the children, the name Bruce Bairns' father is going to be vital for one of your questions, your answers today. But he was born in 1888, died 1959, he was a member at a time of the Windy Corner Shell Home in Reading, and he gives us a classic example of this mutual help that they showed among the men. So after his school, he had been schooled in India, schooled in Britain as well. He signed up to the army, and he joined the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. He found himself pretty bored with all that army life, though, when it was before the war. He left the army, and he enrolled as an art student in the Hassel School of Art. But then he got a call-up to his old regiment as soon as the outbreak of war was declared in August of 1914. He was rapidly moving up through the ranks, reached lieutenant very quickly, and following the British Army stand at Mons in Belgium, he was sent to the Western Front to help relieve that chronic shortage of manpower that the British were experiencing that time at Flanders. While he was at the front, he decided, I'm going to draw here. He came through the Christmas truce of 1914. He said, it all felt most curious. There was not an atom of hate on either side that day, and yet on our side, not for a moment, was the will to war and the will to beat them relaxed. But he drew sketches, day-to-day -day trench life, looking through the eyes of an average soldier. And those cartoons and drawings of his, they saw a publication in the Bystander magazine of 1915. Later, 
Bairn's father fell ill under a chlorine gas attack. In the Second Battle of Ypres in April of 1915, subsequently another wound through a shell explosion, and he sent home to Britain to recuperate, and when the recuperation was over, they pushed him over onto the Isle of Wight, and they told him there that you can oversee the training of fresh recruits that are going to France and going to Flanders, and during the time when he was on the Isle of Wight, what he did was he created a character that people who know anything about war cartoons will recognize this particular one, the character Old Bill. And that brought him praise and popularity in the government now, tuning into this thought, you know, propaganda is very valuable for us. And they harnessed the potential of his cartoons, and they said, well, I'll put you back to the battlefield Instead, you'll be sent on drawing missions covering the U.S. and the Italian forces. But he became rather disenchanted and even embittered by the treatment of returning veterans after the war. No jobs, no homes, dereliction. And he stood oftentimes as their unofficial spokesman. And then he opposed the construction of the Menon Gate in Ypres. It was opened in 1927 because he argued simply the money that's going into this monument would have been better spent on all of these wounded veterans that the government is not looking after properly. It was the spirit of being a member of the memorable order of the Tin Hats, looking out for others, mutual help. These men were in the battle together, determined to help one another through. And now that the war is over, they're being told, pack up your troubles now in your old kit bag and smile and smile and keep smiling. And yet it's hardship still visited upon them that they're having to smile through. They determined we will bind ourselves together, and we will help one another. In the Christian church, is that what we see to be our duty? Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." No, there's a task we're called to. It is to restore rather than ignore Christians, fellow believers who are in trouble, those who have taken a hit from the enemy, who are buckling at the knees, who are feeling isolated. Where are we when they are feeling washed up and broken down? We are meant to edify the saints. And we do this as we work with them to remind them that God has granted through His divine power everything we need to live godly lives in the middle of a world of wickedness. And so there is mutual help. Are we signed up? Do we see it as a priority? And we come with the Word of God and we show that Scripture is not only God-breathed, it is, but it's profitable for teaching in the way that we should go. It reproves us when we've gone wrong. It corrects us so that we can get back on track. It instructs us how to stay on track so that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly furnished, totally adequate, fully equipped for every good work. The hymn says, if I can help somebody... 
as I, can, as I pass along. If I can cheer somebody with a word or song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. If I can do my duty as a Christian ought, if I can bring salvation to a world once wrought, if I can spread the message as the Master taught, then my living will not be in vain. True comradeship, mutual And finally, sound memory was another principal purpose behind these war veterans forming themselves into the memorable order of tin hats. Sound memory to remind each other of the price that has to be paid for the freedom of a nation. We read in 2 Peter 3, the verse 1 and 2, Peter's purpose in writing to the church was, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So what's he saying? Remember the words of Scripture. Keep them close. Keep them in your mind. Install them in your memory. Yes, properly memorize the book. Remember those that were spoken by the Old Testament prophets, by the New Testament apostles. That's what Peter talks about. Remember those words of Scripture spoken both by the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles that they both centered their writing on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, while the greater part of the third chapter of Peter's second epistle deals with Christ's second coming, and it answers the questions, even addresses the mockery of those who were deriding the issue, still, though it's talking about the second coming, the apostle reminds us our duty, 2 Peter 3 and 18, is to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Why do we meet together in church? So that children of God can read, so that they can learn, so that they can meditate upon, so that they can memorize, so that they can adhere to and apply the teaching of God's Word to our lives, so that both young and old may nurture each other in Christ-centered fellowship, Mutual accountability, spiritual growth, encourage one another to boldness in evangelism. Who did you get to witness to this week? What was the response? What did you say? And we do that by filling our minds with Christ. Philippians 4, verse 7 and 8. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren... And he's talking in the terms of we're living in a world of chaos and confusion and consternation and collapse. What do we need? That which is true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. Things with virtue in them and praise in them. That's what we need to be feasting our minds upon. And so they're stirring up their minds. Sound memory. The only solution we have is to consider Him. When the world attacks you, 
consider him. When sin surrounds you, consider him. When men and women disappoint you, and they do, consider him. When circumstances seem to be conspiring against you, closing in on every side, consider him. When friends feel you, consider him. Now, as we draw the message to a close today, just let's have another look at the badge of this memorable order of tin hats. We have our tin helmet. We have the lighted candle on top. And what that lighted candle was doing here was the tin hat, the lighted candle, it's the continual remembrance, the perpetuation of that front-line comradeship that they enjoyed. Goes way beyond, cuts through rank and race and material value and all of that. Keep the flame lit. Two reverse rifles crossed over for sacrifice here as if they're just thrust into the soil of the battlefield and they're crossed, signifying sacrifice reversed. Because you see the soldier, don't you? And his rifle pointing downwards, signifying remembrance. The circle around of stars here doesn't end. It's all connected. Speaking of a universal connection, the best example of harmony, of course, with God Himself, but twelve stars, like a clock here, indicating the hours of the day. And each hour, the reminder is, gives you an opportunity to do something that will promote harmony through mutual help. And of course, as a child of God today, each living hour gives me an opportunity. Lord, may I see the clock See the motif of the 12 stars. Maximize my day. Use my opportunities. Remember thy sacrifice. Light the candle. Keep the light shining. I have only one life on this earth. And this wee candle is going to go out. As vapor, it's passing away. I must labor for treasures of worth or toil ends. At the close of the day, one poor life, small the offering at best. And yet the world and the flesh often call, this my answer must be to each test. I must not serve God with less than my all. May there be in our lives, in our interactions one with the other, may there be that true comradeship. May there be the mutual the evidence, sound memory, educated by and propelled forwards by the living Word of the living God. May our light soul shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven.